In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, 1 Kings chapter 19, right at the very end. What we have been doing so far is looking at the ministry of Elijah, which is a pleasant interlude here in the midst of a long saga of unfaithful kings in the northern and southern kingdoms. Elijah is a, bright, is a, is a flash of bright light for us. And yet we've seen Elijah with his own struggles. Luther speaks on this just beautifully, that Elijah on Mount Carmel is impelled by the Holy Spirit to act so boldly, so fearlessly. And then as he acts on his own accord and apart from the Holy Spirit, um, he cowers at, uh, at Jezebel who threatens him and he runs off from the northern kingdom all the way down to the south, abandoning his post, which of course the Lord never instructed him to do. He goes to the cave. On his way to the cave, of course, he's strengthened by the angel, uh, the angel of the Lord. Fed, he gets to the cave. God uh, shows him in the still, small voice, the whisper, his strength kind of reinvigorating and, and uh, Elijah's ministry and letting him know of some of the uh, temporal helps that were to come, one of which is Elisha. And that is chapter 19, verse 19, where we read, So he, that is Elijah, departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the 12th. Uh, so in a, in a yoke of oxen, as the study note points out, you've got two beasts under each yoke, so you've got 24 oxen. That's quite the, quite the train here. Um, you know, why is, this bit, why is this bit mentioned at all? Probably because 12 is significant in reference to the 12 tribes. And then, of course, we're going to see what happens next, which has some significance too. But uh, 12 is listed here. The prophetic leadership over the 12 tribes, probably in vision. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. This is a symbolic gesture, of course, um, that he is... Uh, that he is to come under his prophetic office and tutelage. Verse 20, And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? You can think of Jesus in a similar you know, let me go back. <laughs> Jesus says no. And Jesus there too talks about the plow and the one who turns. So there's, there's an interesting play on that text. That, uh, and, and by contrast, what would Jesus be doing? The call to discipleship is more urgent than even the call of Elijah to Elisha. Uh, the call to me, Christ, is more urgent still. And no, don't, don't even return to do that. That might be the implication of those actions. <coughs> Excuse me. Just took a big inhale there and <laughs> nearly choked myself. 
So, what have I done to you? That, as the study note points out, is an idiomatic question. That means it doesn't really translate. There's not really a way to make sense to it. Explaining that the call to discipleship was not intended to conflict with respect for his parents. So, sort of like, what is that to me? I think, like, yeah, you want to go see your parents, what is that, to, or say goodbye to your parents, what is that to me? No big deal, you know, that's kind of the idea of what, what have I done to you is, um, yeah, it's fine, in other words, he says, in an idiomatic way. Verse 21, and he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. I, this is a big deal. This is incredible because, as we said, this is 24 oxen. <laughs> That's quite the buffet. That's quite the buffet. Generally speaking, I mean, this is just generally true. Um, the Israelites throughout the centuries didn't eat a lot of meat, at least not relative to us. You know, we go to, you go to A's Burger and you don't really get a salad there, you know. <laughs> Maybe you get the salad with your burger to make yourself feel better. But we tend to eat meat at least, uh, at least two meals a day, sometimes three meals a day as Americans, and um, it mu much more rare for them. Um, and of course, you're, you're talking about a time where there's not refrigeration. So this is going to go out to all the, yeah, this is going to be, it, unless they had oxen jerky, which I doubt. Um, this is going to be a huge feast. And so when it says the people, I mean, this is, a, this is a grand celebration and feast that takes place that probably had, had some great significance then that um, you know, isn't, quite, isn't quite articulated or recorded in the scriptures for us. Yes, Barry. What significance uh, is it that uh, Elijah cast his cloak upon him? Was that a tradition at the time of it's just taken for granted as though it uh, as though it is as though it is we have a similar right and we would describe it in the same way just without explanation probably but we have a similar right when a pastor is ordained um, the the clergy gather and this is usually done in this in a service in a large service with the congregation and the clergy gather and one of the symbolic elements is they take the stole or, which is also symbolic of a yoke, and you can see some of the overlap here, and they place it upon the pastor. Um, now, what, what is the significance of that? The significance is that the representatives of the clergy are gathered there, and you have, you have the imprimatur of the, the pastoral office, of the office of the holy ministry, being laid upon the individual. In other words, in the call and ordination, there's really, there's really two different things. I mean, it's, it's technically one, because the church and the ministry are one. But you have the church giving its approval of the man via the call, via the divine call to fulfill the pastoral office in this place. You have the imprimatur of the office of the holy ministry put upon the man in ordination. We find that we've examined this man, we find him to be fit for uh, the office. And so, those two things. Uh, together. So, yeah, it's a symbolic gesture that at the time was probably fairly commonplace, at least enough that um, there's no explanation given of the symbolism. There's all kinds of fruitfulness for typology here, of course, because, you know, in, in the casting of the cloak upon him, as Jesus' disciples, 
baptized, we are clothed and cloaked in Christ. And so we become his understudy and he becomes our Elijah. So you can, you can certainly see something there. There's this sacrificial meal involved, which no doubt you can see foreshadowing of um, the sacrificial meal of Holy Communion. Um, <clears throat> we talked about uh, the contrast between Elisha being allowed to go back and Jesus' disciples not being allowed to go back due to the greater urgency. And of course, it's apples and oranges. I mean, it always is with typology, but here Elijah is becoming a, an understudy of the, of the great prophet Elijah and soon to be his successor. Okay, we jump back in terms of the narrative to Ahab. Of course, this is whose reign we're under. Ahab, not a good guy, to say the least. So, um, of course, Ahab heretofore, heretofore his great crime has been in bringing in the idolatry of his, uh, of his wife Jezebel. And, of course, she's basically wearing the pants. She's basically running the kingdom um, in a pagan way, and he's assenting and to that and facilitating it. So that's Ahab's number one. Number one, sin, and here we're going to see kind of his, there's three major sins that are articulated in the text of Ahab that, you know, again, they kind of give us a summary of who he was and all the different things he was doing, so that in one story you can understand that there are many other stories like this. But so far we've had the, the one he's brought idolatry, widespread idolatry into Israel. And then here comes the second, chapter 20, verse 1. Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his army together. So, of course, Ahab is in the north, and Syria is north, I think, northeast of that. Um, so they're going to come down. Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his army together. Thirty-two kings were with him. Already you can see how the kings is being used differently. I mean, these are like governors or something like that, commanders in our way of thinking and speaking. Thirty-two kings were with him, and horses and chariots, and he went up and closed in on Samaria and fought against it. Um, Samaria, of course, uh, can be seen in some instances as the capital of the north, um, and then can just be seen as the north itself. And he sent messengers into the city to Ahab, king of Israel, and said to him, Thus says Ben-Hadad, Your silver and your gold are mine. Your best wives and children also are mine. Ooh, a rather ominous note. Everything you have is mine already. And the king of Israel answered, um, As you say, my lord, O king, I am yours and all that I have. Oh, well. <laughs> so there you go. Um, this is, uh, yeah, this is going to be, this is going to be, you know, basically, you're going to pay me tribute, you're going to pay me whatever you want, otherwise I'm going to destroy you. And the response is, okay, you're right. Please don't destroy us. Verse 5, the messengers came again and said, Thus says Ben-Hadad, I sent to you, saying, Deliver me your silver and your gold, your wives and your children. 
Nevertheless, I will send my servants to you tomorrow about this time, and they shall search your house and the houses of your servants and lay hands on whatever pleases you and take it away. That's a strange way of putting it, isn't it? And the study note says that this is further mockery and threats. Verse 7, Then the king of Israel called all the elders of the land and said, Mark now and see how this man is seeking trouble. For he sent to me for my wives and my children and for my silver and my gold, and I did not refuse him. And all the elders and all the people said to him, Do not listen or consent. So he said to the messengers of Ben-Hadad, Tell my lord, the king, all that you first demanded of your servant I will do, but this thing I cannot do. And the messengers departed and brought him word again. Ben-Hadad sent to him and said, The gods do so to me, and more also if the dust of Samaria shall suffice for handfuls for all the people who follow me. And the king of Israel answered, Tell him, Let not him who straps on his armor boast himself as he who takes it off. All right, well, there's a lot of, frankly, confusing and idiomatic uh, modes of speech here. I think you can get the gist without me kind of like doing the in, doing it the injustice of just putting it very plainly. This is a back and forth, and uh, the other <laughs> that's the other part about this whole section. Um, I should read verse twelve, and then in verse eighteen it becomes even more clear too. But look, when Ben Hadad heard this message as he was drinking. Okay, that's, that's a key to some of what's going on here, and probably to some of why it's not clear to us. Um, there, there is a lot of drinking going back and forth, it seems, uh, particularly maybe on the side of Ben-Hadad, um, and uh, a, lot, a, a lack of sobriety, and a lot of back and forth, and mocking and threatening and fiddling around. When Ben-Hadad heard this message as he was drinking with the kings in the booths, he said to his men, take your positions, and they took their positions against the city. So there you can get the gist of, you know, no matter what it might sound like, whatever strange phraseology or idiomatic speech is being used, it's a, it's a back and forth right before there's going to be a battle. And so indeed, that's what's lined up. Verse 13, <clears throat> And behold, a prophet came near to Ahab, king of Israel, and said, Thus says the Lord, Have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will give it into your hand this day, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So what do we see here? A nameless prophet, right on the eve of battle, and a battle that, you know, who knows? It seems, it seems less than likely that Ahab's going to win this battle. But he has, at the same time, the conflict with Ben-Hadad has kind of unified and galvanized God's people against this external threat. So he at least stands a better chance where he is. He stood on his own. He stood no chance. Um, now standing all together, maybe they don't stand a great chance, but they do stand a chance. And here on the eve of battle, God comes and in grace and mercy to Ahab and to his people, completely unmerited and undeserved, he sends this nameless prophet to announce, hey, I'm going to give you the victory. So God being very good to someone who is not very good. 
And I love this last, this last phrase of 13, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So the, here's the proof. And this is then a call back to faith, a call to repentance, a call back to faith, a call back to sanity that God is delivering to Ahab. We'll see if he takes God up on it or not. Verse 14, and Ahab said, by whom? He said, thus says the Lord, by the servants of the governors of the districts. Okay, this is interesting. Look at the, look at the footnote on verse 14. Ahab was trapped in the city without his normal command. He would have to lead an army of bureaucrats against a real fighting force. A considerable act of faith. Okay, so now, now it becomes all the more clear. You know, Ahab says, by whom? Uh, you know, I will give the, it into your hand this day. By whom? How on earth is this going to happen? By what means? I'm surrounded by bureaucrats. That's all I have. I mean, could you imagine taking, like, United States Congress into that? <laughs> I'd rather take kindergartners, I think. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah, so he's surrounded by bureaucrats. This is yet one more, one more example in this very vast line and, and type in the Old Testament of God using forces and weapons way, way, way below what's called for and still bringing about victory, demonstrating his strength. His strength is made perfect in weakness. Exactly right. And that continues into the New Testament. It is given to us in many examples in the Old, including... This one. So he said of verse 14, he said, um, being the prophet, thus says the Lord by the servants of the governors of the districts, the bureaucrats and their servants. Then he said, who shall begin the battle? <laughs> he answered, you. <laughs> I love this. This is great. Then he mustered the servants of the governors of the districts, and they were 232. Contrasted with the great multitude of, of verse 13 and Ben-Hadad coming with all of his, his chariots and his 32 kings, commanders, and all the men underneath them, versus 232 servants, bureaucrats. And after them he mustered all the people of Israel, 7,000. Okay, well that's not very many. Interesting, interesting that that number 7,000 is uh, the, same, the same number as the remnant cited earlier. But I don't think there's any connection. There may be kind of a symbolic connection that there just happens to be 7,000 and that reminds us of the remnant of the 7,000 and God will use the 7,000 to conquer the forces of evil. Like that, that's probably, that's probably the, at most what's going on there. But of course, nothing to suggest that these 7,000 are the remnant or something like that. Verse 16, And they went out at noon, while Ben-Hadad was drinking himself drunk in the booths, the tents, the tabernacles. Yeah, this was his thing. This was what he liked to do. <laughs> this is what he liked to do. This was his hobby. So he was, uh, he was drinking again. He and the 32 kings who helped him. So this is good. This is good because, I mean, this is a good sign. All the, all the leadership of the Syrian forces are drunker than skunks. At noon, 
Of course, our Lord was, was crucified at noon, destroying the, the forces of evil by his death. Verse 17, the servants of the governors of the districts went out first, and Ben-Hadad sent out scouts, and they reported to him, men are coming out from Samaria. And he said, if they have come out for peace, take them alive, or if they have come out for war, take them alive. <laughs> Which is just so great. Obviously, he's been drinking. So <laughs> I mean, it's just perfect. Either way, take them alive. It's so great. It's so great. And it's recorded forever. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so as the state note says, odd orders, likely the result of his drunken state. And could honestly be understood a little bit, like, less like complete insobriety and just um, utter, uh, utter confidence in his strength that whether no matter what they're doing, whether they've come out to fight or come out for peace, either way, just go take them alive. We've got the, such a vastly superior force that we can control this situation. All right, verse 19. So these went out of the city. The servants, oh, well, okay, also, he's sitting around drinking with all his commanders. What does he think of, what does he think of uh, Ahab and Israel? They're nothing. They're nothing. Yeah, that's, the, that's also the point of this, is they're not even worth, they're literally not even worth his time. He can get, he can get completely soused and still uh, handle his business. Okay, so these went out of the city, the servants of the governors of the districts and the army that followed them. And each struck down his man. The Syrians fled, and Israel pursued them. But Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, escaped on a horse with horsemen. And the king of Israel went out and struck the horses and chariots and struck the Syrians with a great blow. Again, this is a supernatural thing we're to be seeing here as the, as the beginning of this section, verse 13 and following, uh, shows us. This is supernatural. This isn't explainable by, oh, they just got the jump on him. Um, God has worked this thing. What are they called in Washington, D.C.? The pages. Isn't that what they're called? The pages. The, the little people who run around in their coats and ties and serve all the... Yeah, these are, this is the... Ben-Hadad and his army are beaten by an army led by the pages. Then the prophet came near to the king of Israel and said to him, okay, this is the same nameless prophet as before. We just don't know who he is. And said to him, come, strengthen yourself and consider well what you have to do. For in the spring, the king of Syria will come up against you. The spring is obviously the time to fight because of the weather. Um, like you won the battle, but you didn't win the war, kind of. I think is the sentiment here. I'll write verse 23, And the servants of the king of Syria said to him, Their gods are gods of the hills, and so they were stronger than we. But let us fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. 
This is a weird ancient view. It's still around in some cultures today, I think especially maybe Eastern cultures, but this idea of very localized deities. And so the argument here is, hey, Israel worships on all the high places. We were fighting in the midst of these high places. There, God's defeated us. I mean, completely pagan idea. But also shows how pagan Israel presented itself. It didn't present itself at all as Yahweh's nation or a monotheistic nation, but as this uh, pagan nation filled with the gods of the hills. Um, and the Syrian gods are, are of the plains, and so they're saying, hey, we'll take them on our home turf and, and we'll, we'll beat them with our home field advantage, spiritually speaking. There, just as a tangent, there may be something to be said of this, although we wouldn't describe it as localized deities. We might, we might um, describe it as principalities and powers, created angelic beings that have dominion over certain spheres of creation, that kind of thing. And that may be the, the nugget of truth in the midst of you know, what presents itself here in the text and amongst all, those, all the false beliefs that these are gods, deities. Um, certainly not. These are created beings, if they exist, if this is a thing, as Daniel seems to show, for example, as Ephesians seems to discuss, for example. Um, these are created beings, angels whom God has given dominion. These are principalities, princedoms, powers, that kind of language, of which we know almost nothing except that it's there. All right, so... Hey, let's find him in our home turf. Ben-Hadad's Syrian army says to him, verse 24, And do this, remove the kings each from his post and put commanders in their places and muster an army like the army that you have lost, horse for horse and chariot for chariot. Then we will fight against them in the plain and surely we shall be stronger than they. And he listened to their voice and did so. Okay, part two, verse 26, in the spring, Ben-Hadad mustered the Syrians and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. And the people of Israel were mustered and were provisioned and went against them. The people of Israel encamped before them like two little flocks of goats, but the Syrians filled the country. Uh, again, that description is not one that fills you with confidence in Israel's military might. So, yeah, apparently two little flocks of goats. Why two? I'm not exactly sure. I'm not, I'm not sure if this is supposed to be like Israel and Judah, two little flocks of goats. I don't know. Anyway, but whatever exactly it means, generally it's quite clear what it means. Israel is once again outmatched. Verse 28, And a man of God, again we have an anonymous prophet here, A man of God came near and said to the king of Israel, Thus says the Lord, Because the Syrians have said, The Lord is a God of the hills, but he is not a God of the valleys. Therefore I will give all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So here for a second time, this time the reason given is uh, the blasphemy of the Syrians. This is not at all unlike 
where Goliath is blaspheming the Lord. And so God gives Goliath into David's hand. Here, Ben-Hadad and the Syrians are blaspheming the Lord, saying, oh, it's funny. I mean, only from a great distance can we see this with, with a sense of humor, but we still can. I mean, God is, God is actually being somewhat hilarious here because he's saying, they only said I was a God of the hills. I'm the God of the plains also, so I'm going to get him for that. I mean, but, if you, but, if, but honestly, God's already kind of condescending and playing this tongue-in-cheek game. He's not only the God of the plains and the hills, but of the galaxies, of the entire universe, of everything. So you can see how God's kind of got his tongue in his cheek here. All right. So Israel is, again, without any merit or worthiness, without deserving it in any way, shape, or form, going to be given victory uh, by God, who is quite gracious and who is opposed to, the, to those who blaspheme him, in this case, the Syrians. And, once again, this will happen so that you, Israel, you, Ahab, will know that I am the Lord. Verse 29. And they encamped opposite one another seven days. Then on the seventh day the battle was joined, and the people of Israel struck down the Syrians. Now, here, we'll read these figures and then we'll talk about them. 100,000 foot soldiers in one day. And the rest fled into the city of Aphek, and the wall fell upon 27,000 men who were left. Hmm. I, uh, those uh, you can kind of see, at least especially that last number, kind of hints at like, it's difficult to see that. So um, if you look at the study note on uh, chapter 20, verse 29, um, and just drop down to the comment on 100,000, the Hebrew word here and in verse 30, verse 30 you see the 27,000. The Hebrew word here and in verse 30 can denote units of soldiers organized by the thousands or also the title for the leader of such a troop. If the wording represents a troop leader, there would be 100 leaders. Um, so in other, words, in other words, we're not absolutely certain that that is 100,000 foot soldiers and 20,000 men. We're not absolutely certain of that. The text leaves it ambiguous enough that um, you know, the editors obviously have to make a decision, so they made the decision they did, but it's ambiguous enough it could mean less. Okay. Ben-Hadad, this is... Um, just simply rounding out the page there, finishing out the page there uh, on verse 30. Then Hadad also fled and entered an inner chamber in the city. And his servants said to him, Behold, now we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Let us put sackcloth around our waists and ropes on our heads and go out to the king of Israel. Perhaps he will spare your life. This is in great contrast, by the way, to the Syrian kings, who are notoriously wicked. I mean, almost all the pagan kings were, but these are the, this is the same sort of 
people group that skins their enemies and covers their inner sanctums with the, with the literal human skins of the kings they've defeated. And um, uh, the Syrians, of course, give way to the, to the Babylonians, and the Babylonians lead Israel away with fish hooks in their nose. I mean, these are the types of, pe the types of people that Jonah did not want to go to heaven. Because <laughs> they were just so grotesque and so violent. Yeah. Okay, so they're saying, hey, but we've heard that the kings of Israel aren't like us. <laughs> aren't like our kings. So, um, hey, maybe they'll spare you if we uh, show humility. So that's the plan. Verse 32, so they tied sackcloth around their waists and put ropes on their heads and went to the king of Israel and said, your servant Ben-Hadad says, please let me live. And he said, does he still live? He is my brother. That was a quick turnaround, wasn't it? Yeah, so Ahab says, does he still live? He is my brother. That fast. Now, the why, I don't know, one of these study notes mentions, maybe I'll hit it as we go, I'm not sure, but um, this is very politically expedient for him to do. The problem is it's not spiritually right for him to do. So we have one more example of the clash between what, is, what God has said and what is right in our eyes and our reason and our senses. What is pragmatic versus what God says. And so um, we'll have those things in our mind as we progress. Verse 33, Now the men were watching for a sign, and they quickly took it up from him and said, Yes, your brother Ben-Hadad. Then he said, Go and bring him. Then Ben-Hadad came out to him, and he caused him to come up into the chariot. And Ben-Hadad said to him, The cities that my father took from your father I will restore, and you may establish bazaars for yourself in Damascus, as my father did in Samaria. And Ahab said, I will let you go on these terms. So he made a covenant with him and let him go. All right. Yeah, the study note on verse 34 says, Evidently Ahab's father Omri suffered reverses that are not mentioned in the short rec record of his reign earlier in this text. And bazaars are um, a promise of trade relationships, so to basically find ways that he can enrich himself in Damascus. Okay, well, um, <laughs> this is not good. This is not good. It hasn't been quite so explicit in the text as it will shortly become, but Ahab was not to spare Ben-Hadad. And so this then is going to be um, Ahab's second great sin as he shows mercy to those whom God would not have him show mercy to. Verse 35. And a certain man of the sons of the prophets said to his fellow at the command of the Lord, Strike me, please. This is such a strange thing, this whole thing. Um, but anyway, you'll see the point. Once more, um, just in this section, a third kind of anonymous prophet. So he says, Strike me, please. But the man refused to strike him. Then he said to him, Because you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, behold, as soon as you have gone from me, a lion shall strike you down. So this is yet one more example of 
just just how how strict some of the prophetic stuff was and evidently he indicated to this man that it wasn't just his idea he wasn't just saying hey hit me uh, but had indicated to him that it was the Lord who wanted this done you know strike me I think strike is more than hit by the way but we'll see that in a minute you can make your own judgment so because you haven't obeyed the voice of the Lord a lion's going to strike you down. And as soon as he had departed from him, a lion met him and struck him down. Then he found another man and said, strike me, please. And the man struck him, struck him and wounded him. So the prophet departed and waited for the king by the way, disguising himself with a bandage over his eyes. So again, I don't know what kind of blow this is, what kind of strike this is, but or why precisely it, it's necessary, but anyway, here we go. And as the king passed, he cried to the king and said, Your servant went out into the midst of the battle, and behold, a soldier turned and brought a man to me and said, Guard this man. If by any means he is missing, your life shall be for his life, or else you shall pay a talent of silver. Okay, well, we're sensing a prophetic trap about to be sprung because he's telling a story here. And indeed, um, that's the case. Now, uh, if you look at a talent um, down in footnote 39, um, penalty for negligence was set at a huge sum. A talent was equal to 3,000 shekels, 100 times the price of a slave. I don't exactly know why the editors chose to put it in those terms, but it's a lot of money. Um, verse 40, this continues, And as your servant was busy here and there, he was gone. So he lost this prisoner, so he's got to forfeit his life or a talent. The king of Israel said to him, So shall your judgment be. You yourself have decided it. Then he hurried to take the bandage away from his eyes, and the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. And he said to him, Thus says the Lord, Because you have let go out of your hand the man who I had devoted to destruction, therefore your life shall be for his life, and your people for his people. And the king of Israel went to his house vexed and sullen and came to Samaria. Okay, so the prophetic trap is sprung. I'm not quite sure I understand it fully, but, um, so don't ask me too technical of a question. But the, the idea was, in the same way, if you remember how Nathan tells a story to David and asking David to render judgment, and David says, surely that man shall die, and then Nathan says, that man is you, a very similar thing here happens. He says, so, you know, Look, I was put in charge of this, of this prisoner. If I was escaped, I was supposed to forfeit my life for a talent. I let him escape. And basically the king says, hey, you're doomed. That's what it is. And then the prophet flips it on him and says, you were given Ben-Hadad, who God devoted to destruction, and you let him go. You are doomed. That's the, that's the punch of this. Whether, you know, even if I can't guide you through the <laughs> very specifics or what exactly is going on, that is the, nonetheless the, at the center. Okay, yes. Um, how do the people in the Old Testament know if the prophet is a true prophet or a false prophet? 
Yeah, good question. Uh, generally speaking, generally speaking, laid out in the Torah, uh, if what he prophesies, and here we're using prophesy in terms of like predict something in the future, because pro that, that's a rather narrow definition of prophecy. Um, prophecy can just, to prophesy can just be to preach and proclaim the counsel of God. Usually there's some kind of miraculous component or future component so that, that, so that what is prophesied along with it can be confirmed by this miracle. Okay? If the miracle comes to pass, if the miracles come to pass, true prophet. If it fails, false prophet. Generally. Generally. Yeah, that I see, and that's a good question. How so? The question, the question for those of you online is, well, how would you know how to follow? I think I think you receive it in trust. Um, obviously, if the prophet's making you trust them at great expense to yourself, you're going to be reluctant to do so, and probably not many prophets are going to do that. But it's going to be subject to trust, and then once it's demonstrated. He's known to be a true prophet. Doesn't mean a true prophet can't turn false, though. So there's, there is this kind of like belief but skepticism, you know, involved. They, I think that there is much more going, much more information here than we're privy to in the text. What looks to us to just be like blind faith and like, for example, how could that guy know that when he said, strike me, the Lord says so, that that was deceitful or not? You know, I think there's a lot more going on there that the text just doesn't state. Things like the reputation. Uh, I mean, like for example, we're not told who this prophet is. I, and here I'm talking about the, you know, the third one. He, we're, not we're not told who he is, but the king recognizes him. There's a lot more going on here that the text isn't communicating to us about these men being known, these men having a reputation, these men prophesying truly in the past and having a long-standing, you know. We're just not given that information to answer those questions. Uh, yes, this this prophet is playing a ruse on the. Yeah, you said playing a ruse on the king. He says the king says you yourself have decided it. So what you're saying will happen to you, and then he takes the bandage off and goes, uh huh, yeah. you know. Yeah. So I think the bandage, if I understand right, the bandage is just for a sake of disguise. Right. I guess what I don't, I, I feel very insecure about this section and my understanding of it. Why didn't he just put the bandage on? Why did he have to get like like punched or struck or whatever it is? Maybe I don't know whether it was. Like, He's a realist. He's. <laughs> I guess he really wanted the blood flowing down out right, of. Right. Uh, right. I don't. I don't know. But anyway. Um, yes, it seems to be a disguise because the king knows who he is, so this is the pretense. The but disguise. he's already pronounced judgment on himself before he sees the bandage off. Well, that's, I think that this is the king's, there's so much idiom in here. I think that this is the king's way of like, like basically if I could try to translate this into English, he'd say, well, it sounds to me, the king would say, well, it sounds to me like you already know. You're dead. Right, that, that's effectively what he says, is he says the way you've laid this out, you've given no indication, no reason whatsoever for why you ought to get off the hook, you're on the hook, and you know it. And then the prophet, you know, whips it off and is recognized by the king and says, you're on the hook because this is the very thing you did. Yeah, yeah. Yes, Barry. A corollary question, and I think I know the answer to this, but... Uh, if we fast forward to today, we have certain pastors who say... 
you know, God told me this, or I received a vision. Uh, what do we as faithful confessional Lutherans uh, refer to and say that God doesn't talk through prophets anymore, only through his word? I, but is there a verse in the Bible that says that? or? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I, this is a, it's a little bit messy. And I, I think we're uncomfortable with messiness. Um, I think our default position, our default position, if someone says, God has told me this, I think our default position ought to be um, skepticism, ought to be one of testing. You know, John will talk about testing the, testing the spirits. On what basis are you testing them? On the basis and principles of, of God's word and the revelation of God that is undeniable. And so if they're saying or doing something that is contrary to that, you know. If they're saying or doing something that is not contrary to that and it happens, you still want to view with a, you still want to view with a testing attitude because that could be a setup, you know. Yeah. Of Satan, right, yeah, masquerading as an angel of light. So I think that there's, there's this healthy degree of skepticism and testing towards things like this. And I think we have to, I think we have to remain open to this in, other, in, in order to be faithful to the, to the biblical tradition, the tradition of the church all the way through the Reformation and all the way up into our present dogmaticians, by the way, which al make allowance for the possibility of extra-biblical prophecy. We make allowance for it because God can do whatever he wants. So I think, I think it is an error on the one hand, and it's just an oversimplification. I, I think in, in, my, in my time as a theologian and pastor, I probably made this error. And that's just, now in these last days he has spoken to us in his son. If it's not just in his word, if it's not just, then, there's, then we can immediately exclude it. While functionally I think that that's true like 99% of the time, it's also true that that very word makes allowance for prophecies and for mechanisms of determining the veracity of those prophecies. And so we need, to, we need to not throw the baby out with the bathwater on that one. And again, this is very Lutheran. This is thoroughgoing in Luther and the Lutheran dogmaticians up to the present. So, And that one verse at the end of Revelation in the last chapter that says, if anyone adds to or removes from this, that's not really referring to the whole Bible. That's only referring to the book of Revelation? Strictly speaking, right. I, why, I think the question is, though, why wouldn't it apply to the whole Bible? And there's some genius of the Spirit in, uh, in uh, organizing the canon in such a way that that, that comes at the very end. I, why wouldn't it be true of the whole Bible? Even though the author, no doubt, means it true for that, that text. Um, but is there... I mean, does that mean, does that mean that Revelation is therefore comprehensive? That there's nothing whatsoever that could be added to our body of knowledge that's not already in Revelation? Well, then you're going to end up indicting a lot of the New Testament texts that do explain and talk about things that Revelation doesn't. So what is meant by that? It's, it's very specific to... Um, don't be tweaking and twisting these things. It's, it's similar to what Jesus says, you know, ab about the law that um, whoever, whoever like, 
lessens or loosens one of the least of these my commandments. It will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. You know, it's like this, this fiddling with God's word and this changing of its meaning. That's really, I think, what's in view. Um, and I think part of that is like a, a knowing manipulation of it. We're not ta- John's not to, talking about like, so if you read Revelation and botch a part of it, the plagues of Revelation are coming after you. You know, there's something more sinister involved there. Okay, well, so to zoom back out and try to take like a broader take, on the one hand, on the one hand, um, we want to make allowance for the idea of extra-biblical prophecy, but not in the sense of new doctrines. The scriptures themselves say that this is the faith handed over once and for all to the saints. Why would we want to believe anything beyond what the apostles tell us is, is required to believe and, and bind consciences to that? We're not going to do that. But there are instances in church history of somebody prophesying this or having that vision or having a dream of Jesus and converting to Christianity and this, that, and the other thing that are kind of these supernatural events. And on what basis are we going to just outright deny the validity of that because of some mistaken ham-fisted sola scriptura thing? We don't want to do that. Now with that, with that kind of set up as, as one, one ditch, that we don't want to fall in? What's the other ditch that we don't want to fall in? I think this is the one that we are seeing just so prevalently in our culture, in our time, and it's why we have this knee-jerk reaction toward the other, is because it's like it's become mainstream in American evangelicalism to, re- I mean, to re- just continually receive visions and words and things from God. And most of them are, just, are nonsensical, and the, they're, neither, they're, they're neither true nor false nor can be verified as such. They're, just, they're nonsensical in a, in a kind of technical way. But, um, and then many, many who have claimed sensical things, like, hey, the end of the world's going to happen here or there or wherever, and it doesn't, or this event's going to happen, or if you do this, you're going to get rich, or all of that, and then it doesn't happen, they've demonstrated themselves to be false prophets. They've demonstrated themselves to be false prophets. And, they, and you don't really get a mea culpa on that one. You get to step down. The mea culpa is you step down from the, from the office of teaching in the, or pastoring, prophesying, or whatever it is you think you're doing. You, you return to your places as just a Christian, yeah, as a repentant Christian. Yes, yes, lots of self-appointed pastors, priests, prophets. Mm-hmm. By, by the Lord, but they like to be, oh, they just self-appoint themselves. They're ladies, pastors, and all kinds yeah, of things. Yeah, it's a big problem. So it goes along with what you said. Mm-hmm. It's a big problem. I mean, e- evangelicalism in general has huge problems in this regard because they just proclaim themselves to be pastors or have this just very nonchalant way of some other pastor claiming that you're now a pastor. It's just really bizarre. And it's exactly what happens when you, when you deny a larger order that God has given to church and ministry. And when you deny that and reject that, then it's just no holds barred. It's what anything goes, whatever you want. It's very cultish. I, I tend to pity 
I, I probably shouldn't, but I tend to, as a pastor, I tend to pity some of these guys because they get thrown into this pastoral office or they assume this pastoral office not knowing what on earth they're doing. Now, those who prophesy and prophesy falsely, and we let them off the hook way too easily. I mean, I think it was back in the 80s that um, the Calvary Chapel guy uh, predicted the end of the world, and it didn't happen. Well, absolutely. Absolutely. But his, but his Bible-believing followers, you know, Chuck Smith or whatever, they continued to follow him for decades up until his death. Yeah. Yeah, it's just, um, I, think, I think also is this point. Nowhere in, the, I mean, nowhere in the New Testament does it talk about the office of a prophet and the, and the point of the prophet's office is to predict future events, or the, especially the end of the world. You just don't find that. You don't find that anywhere. You, you find, you find a, a kind of prophetic office that's synonymous with the preaching office, which is prophesying the things of God. That doesn't mean guessing the future or predicting the future. That means, that means setting forth the things of God into the present. And, and maybe, maybe to some extent, like opening, opening eyes to you know, the events that are soon to come and the theological import of those events. But that's it. You don't find this. You don't find anything in the New Testament about a megachurch. Hey, about Peter establishing the office of megachurch pastor, whose job it is to predict the end of the world and to discern, you know, what what the nations of the world today mean in terms of the end times timeline. You just find none of this. You just, it's just embarrassing. You find none of this. The whole evangelical world, if you analyze it along just strict theological lines, is is cultish and swept up in uh, false prophecy and deceit of, of unimaginable kinds. Unimaginable kinds. But anyway, I, I digress. I'll get off on that and not end for a while. Let's see if we can, let's see if we can just, with a couple minutes left, get through uh, verse... Maybe I already did. Did we get through chapter 20? Yeah, yeah. yeah we already did. Okay, good. Um, so this, this line in verse 42, because you have let go out of your hand the man whom I devoted to destruction, this is the Lord speaking, therefore your life shall be for his life, your people for his people. Um, and the king of Israel immediately repented. No, he went to his house grumpy and sullen, vexed and sullen, came to Samaria. So now this marks the second of Ahab's three great representative sins. One, bringing in idolatry. Two, um, his mercy on Ben-Hadad, his mercy on the enemies of God, his, his, his trust in diplomacy and pragmatic. Politically, this was a wise decision. And his distrust in God who said, look, I've got, if I've got your back, you don't need Ben-Hadad to get, have your back, right? And then what we're going to see in chapter 21 is the third of his great sins. Um, this against Naboth, uh, very famous, very tragic story, uh, and in many ways uh, uh, has elements that prefigure the betrayal and crucifixion of our Lord Jesus. But here, um, you know, serving the purposes of this narrative in historical context to show forth Ahab's third kind of sin, which is he just tramples people and just executes injustice wherever it profits him. We also get to, get to relish once more in the supreme wickedness of Jezebel, 
And then finally we get some justice and then that's the end of 1 Kings and into 2 Kings we go. All right, the Lord be with you.